turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be reading in chapter 2. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. The New Testament starts with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then it has a book of history on the early church called Acts, and then there's Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then you have Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, and then you have 1st Thessalonians, so that's where we're at. 2nd Thessalonians, and then if you get to 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, etc., you've gone too far. So we're at 1st Thessalonians, and then it has chapter markers, chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 1. Let me read from there. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel... So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses in God also how holy And righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. Let me pray. Father, we ask. We ask that as we walk through this chapter penned by the Apostle Paul, as we walk through and think about this church that Paul and Silas and Timothy all planted and pastored together as they cared for this young church, as we walk through the charges that are even brought against Paul and Silas and Timothy with regard to their ministry there, we pray that, Father, we would be able to see that for every, everything for them was about the gospel. Everything for them was about your son, Jesus. And that as we do, we would be able to see what it is that marks out faithful pastors and elders, 
that marks out those who are faithful to your church. And you'd be honored in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you've heard this kind of thing before, what I'm about to say. You've heard it before. Um, but I want, I want you to guess, as I say this, I want you to guess who the following accusations are being made about. You ready? I'm going to make some accusations. I want you to guess who they're being made about. It sounds like we're starting off with gossip, doesn't it? But here, here's what we're going to do. Don't guess out loud, by the way. Don't raise your hand or anything, okay? So here's what we're going to do. Here, here's the accusation. The problem with that pastor is that his evangelism is really just a self-seeking attempt to gain adherence to himself. He's selfish. He's after people's money. And he is likely taking advantage of the women in the church sexually. Do you know how all these so-called self-styled pastors and evangelists are? Right? They go around claiming they have the truth, preying on weak women, and trying to get the money out of people's pockets. And that guy is just another one of those religious charlatans. He's only after his own gain, so don't trust him, don't listen to him. He got what he wanted and quickly moved on to the next town to fleece them as well. So who am I talking about? Am I talking about Jimmy Swaggart or Jim Baker or Benny Hinn, all guys who have been busted recently on these issues? Is that who I'm talking about? I'm not referring to them. In fact, I'm not even referring to someone from this century. I'm referring to accusations made by the people in Thessalonica about the Apostle Paul. Hear that? That's what the Apostle Paul was being accused of. Paul was falsely accused of all sorts of sinful, greedy, and lustful motives. And it was not uncommon in the first century, so you know, it was not uncommon in the first century for men to go about as pastors and evangelists and to take people for their money and for sex. Because there's nothing new under the sun. That didn't just get invented with televangelists, so you know. In fact, it was so prevalent in the first century that Paul gets accused of it. It was so prevalent in the first century that Paul actually has to warn his churches to watch out for these false teachers. 1 Timothy chapter 6, he warns them, for example. But how could those charges be raised against the Apostle Paul? How could they? Well, well, I want you to think back to the founding of this church at Thessalonica. We introduced that last week, but I want you to just look there really quickly. Keep your finger in 1 Thessalonians 2 and turn really quickly to Acts chapter 17. Just go back a few books to Acts 17 and see the founding of this church and how these accusations may have been made. Acts 17, in verse 1, it starts talking about the founding of this church, and it says, Now when they, that being um, Paul and Silas, Timothy, etc., when they had passed through Am Amphipolis and Ap Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned them with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Now, catch this. People were persuaded and joined them, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Hear that? So who follows Paul? Some rich women. Several Greeks and some Jews. They follow him. So now, if you're 
in the first century and you're used to religious charlatans coming from town to town with brand new doctrines saying you're supposed to follow us and not them and then those men are then making money off of people and taking advantage of their women sexually, is it any surprise that when Paul and Silas come into town in Thessalonica and several people start coming and some of them are rich women, that people start making these accusations about them? It's no surprise. In fact, Paul was fairly fly-by-night. He came in, they planted the church, they started to get persecuted. The town asked Paul to leave because, for the sake of the rest of the church, so he left and went to Berea. Planted a church there, got chased out again, and then went to Athens, and then left there and went to Corinth. And Paul heard that these accusations were being made while he was in Corinth. Because what happened is, Timothy came to Corinth, Timothy is one of Paul's followers, he came to Corinth to tell Paul what was going on in Thessalonica. Timothy went back to continue pastoring Thessalonica some along with Silas, and Timothy comes back and says, Paul, we were in Thessalonica, let me tell you what's going on. A lot of good things are happening. However, there are some things that aren't good. And one of the things that's the worst thing that's happening is the people in Thessalonica, not the church so much, but the people around the church, they're accusing you of being after the women and the money, of being a religious charlatan, of being a phony, They're accusing you of that. You need to respond to it, Paul. So while Paul did write these two letters, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, to encourage the church at Thessalonica, he also wrote these two letters to respond to these charges, to respond to the accusations that are being made against him. And as he responded to those charges, we learn much about what a God-ordained pastor, or about how really a God-ordained pastor serves the gospel, and serves the church. And thus really we learn from this what a church ought to look for in a pastor. So today, what I'm going to be doing is, it's going to be interesting for me as I stand up here and point to scripture and tell you what you ought to look for from me. It's a little weird, right? Here's my job description. And I'm going to tell you what you ought to look for from Jason and from Russell and from the rest of our elders. So let's look at Paul's response to these charges and thus learn what we should really look for in a pastor. And we're going to see four responses he gives. Now I'm going to tell you because I wrote this sermon and it's a little longer than I wanted it to be, um, that it may be like sort of one of those choose your own adventure sermons, right? I don't know if I'll make three or four points today. We'll see. Depends on what time it is, right? So got to baptize some people, so we'll see. But I'm planning to make four points And here's what they are, the four, really four responses that Paul gives to these charges, and thus four marks of a good pastor. The four things you ought to look for from a pastor. Here's the first one. The first mark is this, really. Faithfulness to gospel preaching, even at the cost to himself. That's a mark of a good pastor. Did you hear that? Faithfulness to gospel preaching, even at cost to himself. Look look at what it says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, and that four connects him to what's coming, what came before that in chapter one. He's making connection. You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, what was he talking about? 
Well, what had happened is Paul had gotten a call to go to Macedonia with Silas. And when they went to Macedonia, the first place they arrived was Philippi. And when they planted the church in Philippi and started bringing about converts in Philippi, the city of Philippi turned against him. They gathered a crowd and they beat him and Silas brutally. Brutally beat them. They then chained them to each other. And they left them in prison. And how did Paul and Silas respond to that? They sang worship songs. And what did they then do? Well, we're going to have to leave Philippi. So when they got out of prison because of an earthquake, they got out of prison, they left. They left Philippi, and they went to Thessalonica. And what he's saying is, listen, I know you've heard these accusations that our preaching was in vain, that we're charlatans, but you know we were shamefully treated in Philippi. If this was to our advantage to preach the gospel, we wouldn't go places where people beat us up. Paul begins by pointing to his coming to them, not being in vain. And, and look how he says this. As you know, we had boldness, even though we were shamefully treated, we had boldness in our God, that's in his presence, to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. See, we weren't preaching to you in a comfortable situation that's easy for us. Where pastors get to golf free on Mondays like they do in Bakersfield. Do you know that? Wasn't like that. We got beaten. If you look back to actually chapter 1, verse 5 through 10, which I'm not going to spend time doing, but just by summary, we see that Paul really is still building off this idea that he's been laying out there by saying this. You know what kind of reception we had among you. You know that you turned from idols to serve the living and true God. You know you do that. Our, how could our preaching be in vain? You turn from idols to serve the living and true God. You know what kind of men we were among you. You know we suffered for coming here. You know that our good news didn't just come to you as empty words, but it also came in the power of the Holy Spirit, with power and with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You even know that, that you, not just us, but you have suffered for your faith. Just as you saw us do and just as Jesus did. So you know that. And he goes on and says, and we weren't afraid to preach this in conflict, even after getting beatings. Why would we come here for our own gain? From the moment we arrived in your, in your area of the world, we've been persecuted, beaten, falsely accused, imprisoned, and chased from town to town. But in spite of all this, we remain faithful. In spite of all this, we were bold in the presence of our God to declare, to declare the gospel to you, even in the face of paying deep personal costs. So Paul points to the faithfulness of gospel proclamation in the midst of conflicts, and he points to faithfulness of gospel proclamation in the midst of suffering as a response to the charge that he's in it for himself. Notice what Paul doesn't do. What he doesn't do is he doesn't say, you know the massive numbers of people that flocked to our ministry when we came. He doesn't mark the success of his work by numbers, but by faithfulness to preach the gospel in season, i.e. when it's popular, and out of season, i.e. when it's unpopular. And you should require of your pastors, you should require of your pastors, you require of me, 
that numbers are not the metric for success in the church. Do you hear me? Faithfulness to preach the gospel at any cost and in any situation is the metric for success. Now someone might object, but doesn't Paul point back to verse 1-9, or chapter 1, verse 9, where he says that people in the church came to faith. Yes, people came to faith in the church there. My point isn't that Paul didn't care about people being converted by the gospel. He clearly cared about that. My point is that someone was making the accusation that Paul's preaching was in vain, in spite of the fact that people were converted. They were saying Paul's message was false, and because his message was false, their experience was useless. After all, Paul's just getting followers to make money. He wants to be comfortable. Perhaps he even is looking for sexual favors. And Paul's response was to say, you know it wasn't in vain. In fact, the way you really know it wasn't in vain is that we are faithful to preach this to you even when it cost us personally. We weren't doing this for our benefit. We were doing it before the presence of our God to bring him glory and to bring you salvation. That's why we're doing it. That's what you ought to look for in pastors. Men who are willing to faithfully preach the gospel with boldness at great cost to themselves. Men who won't wuss out because their motives or their reputations are being attacked. Men who don't bail because it becomes painful and hard. Men who see their suffering as an opportunity to follow Jesus in making the gospel known through their suffering. In other words, men who don't gauge success on worldly standards, but gauge it on faithfulness to the Lord. Men who fear God more than man. Pastors and congregations, pastors and congregations so often and too often gauge their faithfulness on success rather than gauging their success on faithfulness. What do I mean by that? They say this, look at all the people coming. Look at how well the finances are going. Look look at all the professions of faith and baptisms. We're being blessed because we're faithful. In other words, they believe it's some kind of a law that God blesses the faithful, thus our blessings indicate that we must be faithful. They look at their success to determine their faithfulness. Faithfulness is not gauged by success. Success is gauged by faithfulness. Now please, please don't misunderstand me. Paul's faithfulness did lead to some fruitfulness. You, you know that, right? It led to fruitfulness. And that fruitfulness was an indication that his work was not in vain. But that fruit was often accompanied by suffering. So those pastors and congregants who think it's basically a law that smallness, because there's people on the other side, right? There's people who think bigness means we're faithful. There's people who think smallness means we're faithful. Smallness equals faithfulness. Why does it equal faithfulness? Because our church is small and we don't see much conversion because we're so faithful. And people don't like faithful churches. That's not accurate either. The apostles were being faithful when a megachurch started at Jerusalem. At Pentecost, 3,000 people converted in one day. 
that's just the men. That doesn't include the women. And then the children who came along. That's a huge church. You know that, right? When you have 3,000 men in your church, that's a big church. And if you continue to read in Acts, you figure out it was 4,000 and 5,000 in a matter of a short span of time. That's just men. But not only do they see tons of fruit from their faithfulness, they also experience lots of suffering. So you don't gauge faithfulness by the lack of fruit either. You guys understand that? You judge faithfulness based on what God calls the pastor and the church to do. And then you ask the question, is that in fact what the pastor or pastors and the church are doing? And then you leave the results to God. See, I'm convinced I'm... I'm responsible for the depth of the church and God's responsible for the breadth. Second, second major thing or mark of a pastor is recognizing he is merely, he's merely a steward of God's gospel for God's glory alone. Hear that? He's merely a steward of God's gospel for God's glory alone. Look at, look at verse three. For our appeal does not spring from error. What does that mean, does not spring from error? We're not heretics. We aren't making this stuff up. We're bringing you the truth. We aren't preaching a false message. We're preaching a true message. And then he goes on, and what does he say? Our appeal also doesn't spring from what? Or impurity. What does he mean? We're not looking for sexual favors or money or anything else. We don't have bad motives. We don't have a false message, and we don't have bad motives. And then the last one, or any attempt to deceive. See, we aren't trying to con you out of anything. We don't use underhanded methods to try and manipulate people to giving us stuff or to gathering with us. Now now look at verse 4 as he goes on. But in contrast to doing those three things, using a bad message, or bad methods, or having bad motives, here's what we do. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, in other words, we've been approved. God has chosen to entrust us, to make us stewards of the gospel. You know what it means when you steward something? You, you have money, right, and possessions. 100% of that belongs to God because everything God created belongs to God. You're a steward of it. You're a steward. 100% of everything you have is God's, and you steward it. You either steward it faithfully or you steward it poorly. Well, here's the same thing is true with pastors, elders, etc. in the church. Nothing we do is about us. It's not our story. That's why I don't stand up here and tell you all about me. I'm not the saving power in this. That's why I don't use manipulative, underhanded methods to try to get you to somehow be emotionally appealed to the point that you finally follow. Right? I, I don't do any of this. I'm just a steward of God's gospel. That's it. It's all his. My responsibility is to steward it. That's the responsibility of the elders. Elders in the church never speak out of their own authority or their own opinions or their own story. They only steward what God has given here. 
That's it. God has approved Paul to carry this message. God has entrusted Paul with the gospel. Thus, Paul speaks to what? So look, he says, we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man. See, we don't, we don't need to make people happy with us with this message. It isn't for us. It isn't about us. It doesn't come from us. Somehow it isn't generated out of us. It's all about him. It's his message. We don't care what anybody thinks of us. We only care what they think of him. We don't ple- preach to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. See, I don't use a false message, Paul says. And I don't have impure motives. And I don't use underhanded, manipulative methods. And God is the one who tests my heart as to whether that's true or not. What Paul is saying is that he and Timothy and Silas, notice that because he says we, we, we. I'm not just talking about him. Paul and Timothy and Silas are not interested in changing the message. And they're not they, and they don't have impure motives, and they don't use manipulative methods because they're just stewards. That's it. They're only stewards of this message. This isn't their message. It's God's. They have no right to change it. Preaching this message isn't for their glory. Let me, let me stop. You understand? They have no right to change it. They don't have a right to remove its emphasis. They don't have a right to skip over the parts they don't like. They don't have a right to pretend like these things don't exist. And I see pastors do it over and over and over again, especially when they're being interviewed on the news. You mean you think people go to hell? The Bible says that. You mean you think the Bible's true? Yes, I'm a pastor of, this Christian, of Christianity. I preach the Bible. I think it's true. So if it says it in there, it's true. You, you really believe that. And then we hear pastors say, well, you know, I, I'm not one to judge. I can't really say. You don't judge. God judges, and he wrote down his judgment. People go to hell. He said it. Doesn't mean anybody's happy about it. People aren't excited about that. Nobody's looking forward to that for anybody. If you are, you're sick. But that's the outcome of turning from a holy God. And it's in the Bible. And I don't get to choose to cut it out. And to paste together a Bible I consider acceptable that you all might like. I have to preach it, every word of it, whether I like it or not. And sometimes I don't. I'll tell you, there are some passages I'd just rather not preach. You'd all like me more. (laughs) It's not their message. They have no right to change it. Preaching this message isn't for their glory. It's for God's glory. And it only costs them personally. The converting power of this message isn't found in their manipulative techniques. It's God's power working by God's spirit through God's word. Thus they have no need to use some deceitful schemes to win people over. Pastors and congregations so often lose sight of the fact that they're only stewards of God's message, which is preached for God's glory and which will never return void because God's power is at work when God's word is preached. Thus, here's what the congregations of pastors are doing. They start tweaking the message so it'll be more palatable and less costly personally. They lose sight of why they do this, and they start using the gospel to build their own kingdoms. And then their faces appear on the sides of buses. It's bizarre. 
and they stop trusting the gospel as the power of God for salvation and start using manipulative techniques and programs to bring more people in the doors. You all seen it. I'm not making it up. I've seen it. You've seen it. We're supposed to look for pastors and be the kind of congregation that realizes we're only stewards of God's gospel, which is for God's glory and is applied by God's power. Third major mark of a good pastor, good elders, is the commitment to love God's people sacrificially. Hear that? The commitment to love God's people sacrificially. Look, look at verse five and six. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. What does he mean we could have made demands as apostles of Christ? We didn't go looking for any of this, but we could have made demands. What does he mean? Paul begins by pointing out that they could have asked for money. They could have. Why? Because Paul has said elsewhere that the worker deserves his wages. Speaking of pastors in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse um, 17 to 19, etc. The worker deserves his wages. You shouldn't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. In other words, you shouldn't hinder the preacher from preaching the gospel by not paying him sufficiently. He also said that he who preaches the gospel in 1 Corinthians, he who preaches the gospel should get his living by the gospel. That you should share Galatians Galatians chapter 6, you should share all good things with those who teach you. However, Paul points out that they never did ask for any of that. We could have, but we didn't. In fact, he was an accomplished leather worker. Did you guys know that? He was an accomplished leather worker. We talk about tent making. Tent making was an application of leather working. His, his real skill was leather working. He made tents, sure, but his primary skill was leather working. He was an accomplished leather worker. And he worked hard to pay his own bills at leather working. And Paul was accused of using these people for his own ends. And he responded by saying, listen, I loved you sacrificially. You know I loved you sacrificially. I didn't even ask you for any money. Never did. I worked all day to make my own living, and then I worked all night to teach you the word. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 12. He goes on and talks about his love for them. We could have asked for this, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, our own selves, because you would become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory." But Paul says several things here about his love for them. We were, like a gentle, we were gentle like a nursing mother. How does a nursing mother care for her baby? 
She takes joy, doesn't she, in adjusting her whole life around the needs of her child, doesn't she? And that's how a pastor is supposed to love his people. His life is bent around their needs, joyfully bent around their needs. So people call me at 11 o'clock at night and say, we have a crisis in our house. I know you're at home in bed with your wife and kids. Well, our kids don't sleep in our bed, but you understand. (laughs) You get it. I know you're at home, but my wife and I just had a knockdown drag out, and somebody better come here right now. And we go. Look at my wife and say, honey, my life has been around these people. That's what I do. That's what Jason does. My dad is in the hospital dying. Can you please come? And so Jason and I get up and we go. So we do. It's what life is about for a pastor. That's how a pastor loves his people is life is bent around their needs. Now mind you, My family is also a part of this flock that my life is bent around. And my primary responsibility is my family. So that doesn't mean that I toss my family to the side and bend my life around the rest of the flock. It's bent around all of you. All of you includes my wife and kids. Being affectionately desirous of the church entrusted to his care, he's ready to share not only the gospel, but his whole life because the church is so dear to him. Now, Paul was single, okay? And he had no dependent children. So the way this was manifested in his life looks very different than the way it's manifested in the life of the average pastor who is married and has kids. But the principle is the same, now, now, please don't misunderstand me and don't misunderstand Paul. No pastor can be great friends with everyone in their congregation, nor come to all their family events. You don't even go to all your family events. <laughs> you know it's true. And then still pursue lost people. And then on top of that, care for his own family. And then on top of that, avoid the charge of playing favorites. Even Jesus had his three main guys. You know that, right? Among the 12, you know they fought over who were the favorites. You don't have to speculate about that. There are actual scenes in the Gospels in which they're fighting over who are the favorites. He had 70 more. And he had huge crowds. You know people were saying, look, what's up with Peter, James, and John? Why are they his favorites? Peter's constantly saying stupid stuff. Why does he like him so much? He does too, by the way. James and John, are they complete idiots? Look, they just asked if they could sit on his right or left when he comes into the kingdom. What is wrong with them? They even engaged their mom in that discussion. Their mom even came to Jesus and said, can one of my boys sit on? What? Be grown men. Call your mom. Right? Why? Because because the job was too big for Jesus. Do you know that? He was God, but he was also a man, 100% man. He had the same limitations that every man has. Every man cannot be best friends with everyone around. Jesus couldn't. So he had to choose leaders, and he had to invest in them. That's why Paul focuses on the we here. Again and again, we, we, we. 
Why? We were like nursing mothers. We were like fathers among you. We did this. This is the job of a plurality of leaders. Thus the church raises up several shepherds to do the job. So Paul isn't saying this is all on one guy or even just a few guys. However, he is saying this, that any pastor or elder or shepherd who believes he doesn't need to bend his life around the church joyfully do so and doesn't come down from his pulpit to get his hands dirty and the work of shepherding the sheep is not being faithful to giving his own life for the gospel. Paul goes on to demonstrate more about how this commitment to love God's people sacrificially plays out. Look at, look at 9 through 12 again. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children... We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul's point here is that people have accused him of having selfish motives, but you know the truth. You know, he says, how, we worked, how hard we worked among you day and night. You know how we paid our own bills as we served you. You know what our lives looked like among you. You know. You know how our conduct was holy and righteous and blameless toward you. And by holy and righteous and blameless, Paul doesn't mean you know how it is that Paul and Silas and Timothy, the uh, the three of us, we just don't sin, right? We're the next holy trinity. Here we came, right? No, that's not what he's saying. They sinned. By holy and righteous and blameless, what he's saying is that you know the accusations against us aren't true because they're not consistent with our overall behavior among you. They're not consistent. You know that. For this conduct was shown in how they're like a father with their children. By the way, happy Father's Day. There you go, right? Here's your Father's Day part of the sermon. You ready? Okay? They were like a father with his children. That's the Father's Day part. Okay. So what? (laughs) No, I'm kidding. We didn't take advantage of you. Our whole lives were given to guide you, to exhort you, to encourage you, to protect you, and to charge you to live lives for the Lord. That's what dads do. What dads do? Dads exhort and guide and encourage and protect and charge their kids to live lives for the Lord. So they do. And that's how we lived among you. That's what Paul said. Listen, here's the thing. Lots of accusations of impure motives and sinful conduct will be made against the leader's in your church, whether you go to this church or some other church, they're going to be made, especially when there's conflict. Especially when there's conflict. You will hear half-truths and complaints and judgments about motives. Jason and I just both had accusations made against us this week, right? Jason's not used to that. I get them all the time. (laughs) We had accusations made this week because I'm the lead pastor, and I'm publicly known, I get them constantly. What's my defense before you? How should you weigh charges that are made? Hey, how would I respond to them? My response would be like Paul's. You know how I love the Lord and I loved you. You know that I didn't come here with words trying to flatter you. You know that I'm not a man pleaser. In fact, sometimes you might think that I don't like anybody. You know how I care for you. 
and how I endeavor to give you not only the gospel of my life. You know I labor for you. You know what my conduct is like with you, and God knows too. And you know I've endeavored to exhort you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And if you don't believe those things of me, or you don't believe them of Pastor Jason, or you don't believe them of Russell, or you don't believe them of Randy, or uh, the greater or the lesser, right? We have two Randys on the elder board. One's very large and one's very skinny. So we, we call them Randy the greater and the lesser. If you don't believe them about them, if you don't believe that about John Stevens, then you either need to replace us or find a different church. If you don't believe those things about us, then you need to put, if you do, I'm sorry, believe those things about us, then you need to put away charges like that and rebuke that kind of nonsense. Whatever you do, never bring on a pastor or an elder about whom you don't believe those things. Never. Further, never be a pastor or elder in a church in which you don't have that, in which you don't have this kind of affectionate desire for the people. Never be that. If you don't have an affectionate desire for this congregation, don't come to me and say you want to be an elder. Finally, let me jump to the fourth point. Utmost confidence. Utmost confidence in the word of God. Utmost confidence in the word of God is the power of God for salvation is the mark of a good pastor. You hear that? A good pastor is marked by utmost confidence in the word of God as the power of God. Look at verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus. You know, I'm going to stop there. Before I jump into 14 and six through 16, you received it as the word of God, a work that's, not, and not just the work of men, or the word of men. You received it that way. See, Paul returns to his thanksgiving as part of his defense for his own ministry. You notice that? That's where he goes. You know these accusations are false, and you know they're false because look at how God has worked among you through us. We thank God for that fruitfulness. We didn't do it. God did this work through the gospel. And why is he thankful? Because when they heard the preaching of Paul and Silas and Timothy, they accepted that preaching, not just as the word of men, but as the word of God. And how did Paul know they received it as the word of God? Look at verse 14. Here's how he knew. For you know, brothers, for, excuse me, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You became imitators just like the churches that are in Judea. That's the Jewish churches, Christian churches that are there. You became imitators of them. And what does that mean? For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, the non-Christian Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and all oppose all mankind. And how do they oppose all mankind? By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. He knows they received it as the word of God because they were willing to suffer for it. They were people who knew 
as New Testament scholar Greg Beale puts it, that suffering, suffering is the stadium in which you run the race of the Christian faith. And they were willing to appear in that stadium and run. And this must come from the Spirit of God because, trust me, if you believe that someone's message was just a human message, you wouldn't suffer for it. But these people receive the preaching of these men as the word of God, and he knows that because they're willing to suffer for it. What's interesting is that Paul thanks God that they received their preaching as the word of God. He doesn't think they received it because of his great technique or his incredible oratorical skill or his persuasive plays on their emotions. He thinks they received it as the word of God because he believes that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So how does this confidence in God's work, or excuse me, word, what does it do to the work of the ministry that you see showing up in the life of your pastors and elders? You want to know how confidence in God's work changes, or excuse me, confidence in God's word changes the work of your pastors and elders? Here's, here's how it shows up. It shows up in that they're constantly pointing you back to the word of God, and they're constantly pointing you back to the fact that the gospel is the story about Jesus. It, you preeminently see it in their teaching and preaching, but you see it in other areas as well. They, become, they, they are known as men who are confident in the word of God. They're not peddlers of God's word. They're not salesmen. But men who know their own insufficiency. They know they're weak. They, they're insufficient to do the work of the ministry. And they believe their only usefulness is found in making an open statement of the truth. That's it. All I'm useful for is making an open statement of the truth. They believe the, God, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it never returns void, and that by preaching the word, God's people actually hear the voice of Jesus calling them out and saving them and sanctifying them. That's why when you look for a new pastor or elder, you don't go looking for a salesman who thinks he can overcome the resistance of the consumers out there. Why not look for a good, winsome, charismatic salesman who can really cut through the resistance of those opposed to God and his word? Why not? Because making, listen, making that the priority miss, or wrongly, incorrectly, misidenti- or incorrectly identifies the problem. It's a wrong problem. The problem, isn't, the problem isn't the open and unashamed proclamation of God's word. Although some people say that, well, preaching's fallen out of style these days. You know, people don't like to be preached to. Especially don't like it when the preacher's up above them. Good luck when you rent a school with the stage is huge, right? So they don't like that. They want to be in dialogue. Get down on the floor with them and interchange. They don't want someone telling them this is what God says. People want video. And they want PowerPoint. And they want shows. And people want short sermons. And they want skits. That's what people want. People don't want the word of God. Haven't you watched television? Sitcoms are 30 minutes and 20, 15 to 10 of those, or 10 to 15 of those are commercials. That's what they need. They have short attention spans. They can't handle the word of God. They're a bunch of stupid chattel. You want to overcome it? You got to get a guy in here who gets that. So the solution is find a better ministry technique and find a guy who gets better ministry techniques so you can put him in there to lead the kind of production that's needed to draw the kind of people we now have. Think of the parable of the sower in Luke. You know the parable of the sower in Luke? What was the problem according to the parable of the sower in Luke? If you remember the parable, 
Remember, there's one sower and four different kinds of hearers or soils. Four different kinds of hearers. The one sower represents the preacher, and sowing the seed represents the word being cast out. And the sower and the sowing were never the problem. What was the problem? The problem was that the hearers were resistant. They needed to repent and receive the word as God's word. But, but how could they if the preacher do, chose to do something other than make an open statement of the truth? You know, Alistair Begg, who's a pastor in Ohio, he made the obs- this observation in the parable of the sower. Here's what he says. Jesus doesn't say this. You ready? Here's, this is not how the parable of the sower was written. There are four different kinds of sowers. One sower preached a 40-minute sermon and no one listened. A second sower gave a good talk for 25 minutes with a PowerPoint and a drama, and no one listened. A third sower rambled on for five minutes about who knows what with 35 minutes of music, and no one listened. The fourth sower came and said just the right things, and he had just the right band and just the right activities, and many people listened. So buy his book on ministry, follow what he did, and you'll have thousands of people coming to your church. See, when you're looking for leaders in the church, you look for leaders who make an open statement of the truth. You look for a preacher who trusts the gospel to do its work and thus is faithful to preach it. And much of the problem of the contemporary, contemporary pastors is that we seem to get caught up with this idea that anyone can receive the gospel if, they can just, if I can just find a way to manipulate you into agreeing with it. And we believe that preaching really doesn't win people these days. And we need to look at how the culture do, what the culture does that attracts crowds, and we should copy that. You may attract crowds, but they won't be saved by these things. What you win them with is what you win them to. If you're not winning them with the gospel and the word of God, you're not winning them to the gospel and the word of God. Men are blind and deaf and dead. And my technique does nothing for anyone God's gospel is the power of God for salvation. The Holy Spirit must work, and he works through the word. So how do I sum all this up? You look for leaders in your church that are deeply gospel-centered people. That's how I sum it up. That are deeply Bible-saturated people. You look for men who know they have their ministry by the mercy of God. Men who know they can't change anyone, but who believe that God working through his gospel can change anyone. Men who love Jesus and his church and are ready to give their lives to see Christ formed in the people of the church. Men who recognize their weakness and even glory in it because they know God gets the glory. Men who do not give up in the midst of conflict and suffering because they're confident that the weight of glory they will receive is beyond all comparison. Men who fulfill what Paul does when he describes himself to the church at Corinth where he was also being accused of sin and wrongdoing in this way. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of, un- of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light 
of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring, with, bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we, as a church, walk with your son, that we would recognize, remember, that the story of the gospel is about him and not us. It's his story given by you for our good and your glory. Father, we ask that you would give us always here pastors and elders, leaders, shepherds, small group leaders, the whole thing, who are consumed with loving your church for your glory, who are consumed with preaching your word, whether it brings suffering or not who believe that your power or that your power is found in your word as your spirit works, who make an open statement of the truth of the gospel. Don't practice bad methods, who don't have impure motives, who don't preach a false message. Father, we pray that you would do that in this church, that you would make this a congregation who longs for those things, a congregation who receives the preaching of the word for what it is, not the word of men, but the word of God. That would be demonstrated as we recognize, Father, that, that suffering is the stadium in which we run the race of the Christian life, that we would be a people who enter that stadium and run for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.